I'm Grim. I'm Zolgar. That's Kaiju. And this is Two Idiots and a Dog, Idiots on Film. Where we explore movies that we love. Or think are important for pop culture. This week on Two Idiots and a Dog, we take a look at Alien. We chose to do Alien for a couple of reasons. So first of all, Alien is a classic. It is an iconic masterpiece of sci-fi horror. It really is. It is also one of my favorite movies and one of Grimm's favorite movies. Also, just kind of a personal thing, I like to credit Alien for my existence. My parents' first date was seeing Alien, and they will probably argue with me that it's not actually the case, but I choose to believe that if they went to any other movie, they wouldn't still be together. You know, this explains an awful lot in hindsight. Huh. But before we get into that, a quick word from our sponsor. But we don't have one, so here's a shameless plug for our artist instead. Like our logo? We do too. It was made for us by Tundra Katie Bean. You can find more of her work on her Patreon at patreon.com slash Tundra Katie Bean. That's patreon.com slash T-U-N-D-R-A-K-A-T-I-E-B-E-A-N. You can also find a link to that on our Patreon page and our SoundCloud page. So, Alien. Where, where do we start on that? Uh, visuals, man. Visuals. From that title scroll straight on through. You don't see a title scroll like that anymore. Yeah, that really... That low, dramatic buildup. And, and you watch that slow reveal of the title of the movie. It starts with just one line in the middle. Then a slash. Then another slash line, and it, it, it takes what a good like minute and a half, two minutes for Alien to come together. And even having watched the movie, it's been a while, so I'm sitting there going, I don't remember this. Is this like some part of the display or the HUD or of the ship? Or oh no, this is still the title scroll. Yeah, and of course, it's semi related to aesthetics. You know, a lot of these older movies do have a really slow lead-in, but in this one it works so well because that slow, quiet lead for, you know, first showing the space and then sh- going through the ship, no sound at all. It's like that captures the isolation of the ship and her crew. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the big things about this is slow build is kind of the name of the game for this film. A lot of modern horror movies are, well, kind of just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Alien takes its time. It builds things up. And I think that's part of what makes it so iconic and makes it work. Yeah, it, it is easily one of the greatest in the sci-fi horror genre, if not the greatest. And a lot of that is the suspense and also the visuals feeding into the suspense. I mean... That set, you don't see intricate sets like that anymore. Yeah, well, and then, of course, that set was built in such a way that it had a claustrophobic feel for the actors because that was one continuous set that to get to this part of the ship, you had to walk through other parts of the ship. You know, if they had had the time and money, they would have built the thing three-dimensional and actually had them climbing up and down ladders to change scene locations but they didn't have the time and budget for that one and honestly if you even suggested that nowadays 
they're going to laugh you out of the room. Not entirely. Semi-related, Firefly. Mm -hmm. Serenity was a single set. It was, they built that ship. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But Firefly is old now. Shut up. We're old, Zilligar. Shut up. I refuse to accept that. Nowadays, you would be laughed out of the room. 1990 was still 10 years ago. (laughs) It really wasn't. (laughs) So before we both age to dust and blow away, let's try to cover as much of this film as we can. I'm getting older as we speak. The visuals are all over the place here, and they're supposed to be. We've got the ship itself, which has that wonderful retro futurism going. Big, clunky CRTs, giant, click-clacky, mechanical keyboards. I'm still not sure what was up with the modified helmet thing sitting on the bridge. They said, if you look at it, there was a, actually a uh, thing on it that said emergency helmet. Oh, cool. There's actually a little thing. Yeah, it says emergency helmet. So apparently if there was a breach, the people on the bridge could throw helmets on and actually have like oxygen that they could breathe. That is pretty cool. Nice little details. And details are really kind of also the name of the game here because we've got all sorts of details that I missed, honestly, with previous viewings because I, I was much younger when I last saw this. Like, oh... I don't particularly want to consider that number right now. So, moving on. I mean, I last saw this less than two years ago. I saw it two years ago in theater. Yeah, but that's because you go to weird local theaters that do stuff like that. Oh, no, when this... Well, it was the weird local theater. For the 40th anniversary, it was even hitting big-name theaters again. But also, I'm a huge fan of this franchise. Nerd. Anyway, details. (laughs) Some of the details here that we really want to look at are the control systems are clunky and awkward. I mean, you look at Mother. Mother is... I've seen bank vaults with lighter security than that thing, and that thing was... My phone is more powerful than that mainframe. Yeah. And easier to use, too. I mean, text interface. And and not like a nice, efficient text interface, either. It looked like it was like you had to hit certain keys... Because it wasn't sitting there typing in questions. It was like, click, 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 here's the thing. Yeah, which is interesting. We Some other details, We uh, like the ships, the, the design of the Nostromo and the refinery it is hauling because these are two separate physical entities. These are two different space structures. The Nostromo itself is a little more streamlined, but really not that streamlined. It's streamlined just enough because it is supposed to be able to land an Atmo. The refinery is this chunk of metal with these giant spires jutting up out of it. No aerodynamic quality to it whatsoever. The The refinery was basically the equivalent of a deep-sea drilling platform. Yeah, it, it was this massive, bulky thing. It didn't need to be aerodynamic. This is space. Likewise, because this is space, whenever you notice them maneuvering, the engines aren't running forever. They light up, the ship positions, and when they hit their trajectory and acceleration, they cut those engines. They no longer need them. You don't need constant burn in space. It's a waste of fuel. Yeah. 
Once you hit your achieved velocity, you do not need to maintain thrust to maintain that velocity. Yeah, you only need to maintain your engines running to continue to accelerate. Which you know brings to, I think you had a note about the, the size of the ship compared to the size of the refinery. Yeah, because you know, in the real world, most of the time, unless you're hauling something like 20 feet at 2 feet a minute, then, you know, you need something large with serious hauling capacity. But in this, your refinery is the size of, like, darn near the size of a small city by the looks of it. And the Nostromo is, like, the size of a decent-sized house. And you that works because... The added mass will affect acceleration, but you can still accelerate. The place where the added mass is going to be the biggest problem is deceleration, because inertia is still a thing in space. It is. Though, apparently, they have some form of inertial dampening, because they comment about losing their inertial dampening when they go into atmosphere. Yeah. There's all sorts of cool things going on there. I love the tech. But that's not the only visual thing we have going here, the only details that we have going for us. I mean, we're looking over just these, they're, they're, there are a lot of shots that would never happen in a modern movie, with these slow building shots. Like, think of the exterior shots on the ship at LV-426, which, yeah. okay, it's never actually named that in the in this, in this movie, but this it's movie. the same planet. Um, same planet, yeah. The exterior shots of the of the engineer's vessel. Yeah. That thing that to me that just shows how insignificant the humans really are because you've got this way far back shot and the only reason you can tell the humans are on screen is their headlamps. Yeah. And the thing is once they're inside everything is so much bigger than them and you've got all these establishing shots. And we start seeing some of the really weird designs of the movie, which really sets it apart from the very utilitarian interior of the Nostromo that we've seen up until this point. And I love the fact that the engineer they find, who is very dead, in case you haven't seen the movie in a while, is sitting in a chair. They say it seems to be growing out of the chair. And there's just enough human element to this skeletal weird remain to be deeply unsettling and i also love in that 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 kind of foreshadows the chestburster because they the they find that the rib cage looked like it had been punctured outward and of course that is also where we start seeing uh geiger's touch on everything go ahead i there, know you want to there is so much phallic imagery in this movie so many dicks! Lots of dicks. So many dicks. All of the dicks. But not all of the dicks are in the cast. Most of them are, though. <laughs> but there are... I mean, even the egg chamber scene, which is where we get our main payoff for the excursion, is still this slow, wide-panning shot. Yeah, you're seeing, uh, you're seeing how many eggs there are, which is a terrifying thought once you realize it and absolutely sets up the sequel oh yes spoiler alert god i can't wait to do that one i know let's just skip the rest of the season (laughs) sounds good (laughs) so we've got this this really slow build-up for 
Which brings us to our first true jump scare, which is impressive by modern standards. And that is, of course, the facehugger. So we've got all this buildup. It's not just our first true jump scare. That is our first jump scare. And we're, but we've got all this buildup, the slow building dread, like, because we know something's going to happen. It's a horror movie. We know what we signed up for. Which, as an aside, all of this proved that there are no movies in that universe. Because I'm sorry, about the time you're going, what the hell is this? That's your clue to get the hell out of there. Well, maybe there are. Maybe Lambert's a movie fan, and that's why she kept saying, guys, let's, let's go back to the ship. Let's get out of here. Yeah, maybe. But apparently nobody else watches those movies because they were all in. Yeah, and about the time you see the eggs, you're like, huh, they look like eggs. I'm noping out at that point. Like, unless no. I've got a bandolier of grenades ready to go, I'm out. No, no, you're going you're gonna to wait till one opens and you're going to stick your face right over it to see it. And that's where we get our jump scare. To me, it's, it's kind of telegraphed because come on, we know something has to happen at this point. Yeah. But we still have that slow build with this short, brief action sequence. And then we don't even see them running away. We jump straight to them back to the ship. Yeah. Which, like I say, I love when I saw that in theaters for the 40th anniversary. The entire theater still jumped from that scene. Because even when you know it's coming, it's still there. And it's that primal, this thing is coming right at your face. Yeah. Ridley Scott knew what he was doing. And honestly... For a horror movie, there are about seven what I would consider true jump scares, and a couple of them play with being jump scare. So we've got the facehugger, and we've got Dallas knocking over a piece of equipment in the infirmary, which then immediately segues into an actual jump scare of the dead hugger dropping on a Ripley's shoulder. The cat gets us twice. I still want to know why the hell there was a cat on that ship. Are you saying you wouldn't take kaiju with you into space? I don't know. I mean, but... Do you not love kaiju enough to take her with you on a months-long journey through space? Kaiju, do you want to go to space? What is space? Cannot eat it. So, all of, uh, some of those play with it. Like, honestly, the infirmary scare is gorgeous, in my opinion, because... Oh, God! Oh, it's the... Oh, God! Oh, it's also nothing. Because the, the hugger dropping both is and isn't actually a threat. Yeah. It, it, it's foreshadowing, but it, it's weird, and, and it's definitely the alien, but it's also, at that moment, it's dead. It's no longer a threat. So it plays with our expectations a little bit, masterfully so, I might add. You know, we get the cat twice. Again, totally screwing with our expectations, like, because it's, like, it's always that slow, creeping build before, like, oh, something's going to happen, something's going to happen. Oh, oh, there's a cat. And then we get that brief moment of why is there a cat before he goes chasing off after the cat. And then we get the cat again. And then, well, Brett has a very bad day at work. But not very long after that. The There's there's three what I consider true jump scares here. Yeah. Which the last... are they're the valid scary threats. You, you did miss covering the last one, which is at the very end on the ship when... The alien's arm just kind of falls out from where the alien's hiding. That's one of the three. But uh, well, what I said is... You I were, haven't gotten to the second yet, either. Oh, yeah, the chestburster. The chestburster. Iconic scene. Iconic. You can make fun of me for saying that every episode all you want. I don't care. Iconic. Of course, that scene was... There's a common, uh, common misconception that scene was done in one take. That is not the case. 
But when they did first film it, they tried to do the the scene without the actors except for John Hurt knowing what was happening. And amusingly, it worked except for the the system to make the chest burster pop out failed. And then so they had to reset and do it again with the chest burster actually popping out. The really cool part is they used the failed take as well. Where they basically extended that scene so the chest burster took longer to get out and it's like it started to break through before it fully broke through, which is where you get the scene where Hurt's chest first gets bloody and there's a small splurt of blood that hits Lambert. Is that that shriek of fear? was completely real because she had no idea what was coming and also did not know that that was real animal blood. They used real blood and guts for that scene. Ah, stuff you absolutely could not get away with anymore. With good reason, I might add. That's just yeah, not okay. But yeah, the some of those reactions were absolutely valid because the crew had no idea what was going on, but they also splashed together with the second take for the full reveal. Yeah. And interestingly enough, that sequence is the only sequence in the whole movie where, for a few brief moments, we can see the entire creature before it be- completely changes into another form and we never see the entire thing until the very, very end of the movie. Because, again, Ridley Scott knew what he was doing. You don't want to show the whole creature. And it's interesting, like, it wasn't like some high and mighty thing where you just, I must imbue dread and not show the whole creature. No, it was deliberately done to hide the fact that how human the creature was because it was a ultimate. guy. It was a guy in a rubber suit. And there, there is a second part of that. It's not just to hide how human it was. It's also, there, there is a simple fact. What your audience imagines is always scarier than what you can show them. Absolutely. But again, that just goes back into the visuals real quick. Is, is Everything here was done to build dread and suspense. Even the reveals, the creature's first true kill is this slow, looming dreadful. Like, we're watching it happen, and he's just completely unaware that he is about to get murked. Yeah. because Well, of course, at this point, he still thinks it's something little tiny that's, pro- that's probably not actually going to be able to kill him. Unfortunately, he did find the shedding, and, well, we've established in the note session that character is not the brightest bulb on the tree. Now, that that does lead to one thing that I, I want to know, and I really wish they would have at least covered it to some extent. Mass has to come from somewhere. So how did, in that short amount of time, the alien get fr- get enough mass to change from something the size of a cat to something bigger than a human? That's a good question, one that I don't believe the franchise itself even answers, at least not in film. Maybe one of the comics or books or video games or something might answer that, but to the best of my knowledge, I haven't heard anything about that. That is an interesting factoid to bring up. I do know that by this point, the creature is terrifying, which mission accomplished. And here's the thing, we're also kind of expecting, like we see the shedding and we go, oh, that's, that's not good. But we're expecting like, okay, maybe it's the size of a dog now, or maybe it's just a different form now. And then we see that long tail slithering through the background as he's confronting the cat, and we're like, oh no, that's bad. Okay, it's a lot bigger. 
oh, wait a minute, that was a tail, not its body, because then we see the head the head and wheel shoulders and a little bit of the the framework that implies there's hands and claws but i don't think at that point it was actually revealed fully the upper body i mean but we had enough to know oh that is oh no this thing isn't serpentine at all anymore also what was with that room yeah i i swear i swear that room was just done there and done to be creepy and Given the fact that the studio actually fought Ridley Scott on that room, because they're like, why? What purpose does this serve? I mean, the industrial elements of the room I could get, but why was it so wet? Like I say, I I swear, it's the Rainy Cheney room. I I guess. I, I mean, Ridley Scott, if you ever, for some reason, listen to this, feel free to email us and tell us what was going on there. That gives us our visuals. They're great. They're stunning. They're amazing. And then we segue into the actual story elements here. And honestly, at its core, this whole movie is just, hey, we shouldn't do that. Let's do it anyway. Well, there are three places that this movie, if they just listened to one person, would not happen. If they listened to Lambert, nobody would die. If they listened to Ripley, obeying protocol, one person would have died. Maybe three. Pretty sure they have to be in quarantine with him, so... Possibly. Yeah. It was kind of implied, or at least that's the take I got. And then thirdly, remarkably enough... Parker, the black guy, is like, hey, uh, freeze him multiple times. I just want to take a moment to say the remarkable part isn't that he's black, although that is remarkable for a completely different reason. It's remarkable because he's one of the maintenance crew and throughout the movie has been dismissed as a clown. Yeah. So him coming up and being like, we why aren't we freezing him? Why are we not putting him back in cryo and dealing with this when we have more prepared scientific personnel on hand to deal with this is surprising. Though, at the same time, now you stop and think about it for a second. If they had frozen him and taken him back to Earth... Oh, yeah, we'd all be dead now. I want, I want to see that movie. <laughs> right? But yeah, right. Ridley Scott, if you're listening to us... <gasps> right. <laughs> right. Right. For those who haven't seen the movie in a while or just haven't seen the movie, that happens to be one of the characters' basically catchphrase. And they even call him out on it in the dialogue, which I think is great. But honestly, the characterizations are, are amazing throughout the film. I mean, we start with the breakfast scene, which really establishes these guys may not be fully family, but they're family adjacent. They've been crewing together on at least this job, which has taken months upon months upon months. Uh, so an interesting little tidbit. It was it was removed from Alien, but it did come back. The concept did come back in Prometheus. Ridley Scott originally had a couple of scenes in Alien that gave us a gave us a strong indication that. There was a lot of casual sex among the crew. There was supposed to be an actual sex scene between Ripley and Dallas, which the actor that played Dallas was like, why is this here? It adds nothing to the movie. And Scott was like, okay, yeah, I suppose we can remove that. And there was also, I think that one made it into the deleted scenes, a scene where Ripley asks Lambert if she's ever slept with Ash. Hmm. Did not know about that. Interesting. I'll, I'll admit, like, okay, I am down for a good sex scene. 
but honestly, I think the the version we got without it is better for it. Yeah, I agree. But then again, I'm not a big fan of pointless sex scenes, so. Yeah. Grant, on the other hand, Sigourney Weaver is pretty hot, so. That kind of ethereal thing, like, otherworldly. Like, she's gorgeous, but she's not, like, human gorgeous. Yeah. She's... And this is not an insult, by the way. If somehow Sigourney Weaver ever hears this, I promise you I'm not intending to be insulting. It's just a thing. Anyway, the story elements here are really, the, after it is on board, the story beats are pretty much consistently, someone says something super smart, and everybody ignores it. I mean, we literally have a scene where, okay, what we've got to do, no matter what happens, is stick together. And then they all immediately disperse. Let's um, split up, gang! Um, you literally just said you guys had to stick together, at least groups of two, and you go off and do anything but that. What? Also, we've got, uh, again, not really a trope subversion, but kind of a trope meddling, where we've got a black, one black cast member who does not die first. In fact, he's one of the last two people to yeah, he buy died. the big one. He dies in the, the the scene with the last two people to die. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. And then our last survivor is a woman, which is typically only seen in slasher films like Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Halloween, Friday the 13th, the Jason movies. Granted, there this movie does have a lot of the archetypal tropes of a slasher as well. It's it's not quite a slasher, but it's re it is slasher adjacent at least. That hard is a Christmas movie. Alien is slasher adjacent. I'll give you it. And I have a dog gnawing on my hand. So all is right with the world. Yeah, we've got so a lot of really cool things going on here, and the story beats make sense. The characters make sense. Like the stupid things they do make sense, and ultimately that leads us to. Our final scene, where I just, I just, I have to ask, I have to ask, how many nuclear detonations was that? Uh it it totally wasn't nuclear. It was um, they it was Kuiper crystals. Wrong franchise. Uh dilithium. Still the wrong franchise. What did they use in uh, in Battlestar Galactica? <laughs> I think it was just nuclear. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no, that there were three distinct detonations in that sequence. And they weren't they, they were not small detonations. No, they I want to know what they were mining and what they power that ship with. I I got nothing. But yeah, that and that, of course that whole that final sequence that apparently a, the original cut of the very original script was supposed to be just the end of oh hey, she flies away safe, but they add the alien in there. Yeah, Ridley Scott apparently decided that that wasn't uh, as interesting. He quickly penned in a fourth act and got more funding from the studio. And then uh, uh, the second original ending was Ripley dies and the alien basically impersonates her in order to get somebody else to pick it up. And the studio went, eh, no. <laughs> now, to his credit, Mr. Scott has since stated that that was the correct choice. But at the time, he was like, no, 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 and then she dies, and it impersonates her. 
the studio actually literally went down to the to the the set and was like, "Change it or you're fired." Apparently, this is what I've heard. And of course, I, I love the fact that you have Ripley really terribly singing. You are my lucky star as she's trying as she's kind of setting up to get the alien out into space. And I don't know the number, but I know that it cost the studio an absurd amount of money to get the rights to use You Are My Lucky Star for Sigourney Weaver to sing it terribly. Is that what that was supposed to be? Hmm. I choose not to cast aspersions on Sigourney for this, but... Eh. Ultimately, though, all of these elements come together to create a film that really is better than the sum of its parts. And also all of the elements that ended up not in it. Like, okay, like the uh, planned sex scene between Ripley and Dallas. Or at the end, there was a, a originally a plan for as Ripley is undressing for the alien to be watching her in an almost sexual fashion. Which... I'm all for alien porn, but no. And then there's the elements of it that we just don't see that we should have. We don't see them because they're not there, to be clear. And that's really the Ash reveal. Like this is this is kind of my final thing I want to touch on is the Ash reveal. Like, okay, Ash is totally weird for the whole movie. But he's not like I'm secretly a robot weird. He's just Absolutely weird, a little skeevy, and clearly has his own going on. Yeah. I honestly kind of wonder if the actor playing him knew that Ash was supposed to be an android from the get-go, or if that was something that wasn't revealed to him until later in production. I generally don't know. That is a good question. One we'll probably never have an answer to. Probably. It's intriguing. I mean, I feel the reveal could have been done better. But I am glad it is there, because it does establish that synths, which is the name they eventually end up going, although they don't use that term here in the movie, exist. It makes some of the other pieces of media in the franchise so much richer for it. But there's absolutely zero hint of it, and it could be that he was very deliberately not revealing that ahead of time. That it was supposed to be this surprise big shock, but as you've stated in previous conversations, it kind of fell a little flat on that regard, and that it just kind of happens. But they had a lot of fun with that scene. You can tell they had a lot of fun with that scene, because Ian Holm just went nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the androids, I am still pissed at Covenant for one thing. That's a completely different show. But they broke the pattern. Ash, Bishop, call David, like Jason or some crap. Pat, pat, pat. There, there, Zolgar. There, there. You can rant about that whenever we finally get to Covenant. We are doing the whole franchise eventually. I will rant about it in every Alien movie we do. See what I have to work with? See what I have to work with? There, are, there is one question I have about Alien. Really only one. I think that's a, that's a good, good thing to end on here. What's your question? Why did the Alien not kill Jonesy when Jonesy was sitting right there in the crate right in front of the Alien? My personal theory? Not enough biomass to be useful. But that's just my theory.
which, yeah. if that is the case, creates interesting implications for the, the xenomorph physiology and life cycle in that there are limits to the biomass they can make use of. I mean, logically, it makes certain sense that you hit a certain limitation of biomass where they are no longer of interest to the hive. Spoiler alert, in the sequel, there's a hive. So, but we never have a clear establishment of where that cutoff is. Like, you would logically think, like, insects serve no use to a xenomorph colony. There, There is another potential, and maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Hmm. What I kind of, what I kind of think is it left the cat as bait. That's possible. And then it got sleepy and needed to take a nappy wappy after all that nomming. Though I, I'm pretty sure that in that sequence, I don't think it was just like napping there. I think the hard acceleration probably slammed it back there and hurt it. That's possible, although you would think a concussive hit like that would still have resulted in some exoskeletal damage resulting in acid, but eh, I don't know. They, can... they have a hard enough shell, because if you have acid blood like that, and it doesn't take much to break your shell, you're going to do a lot of damage to a lot of things. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, we really don't know much about the internal physiology of these things beyond acid, acid everywhere. So it would be interesting to see and do a little research on. And I look forward to to uh, readdressing some of this when we do Aliens, because, we, like I said, we're doing the whole franchise bit by bit, folks. So it'll be interesting. That said, that's all I've got. Yeah, uh, I think, I think that, that about wraps it up. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to Two Idiots and a Dog. If you like what we do, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash TIAADmedia. That's T-I-A-A-D media, all one word. If you want to send kaiju fan mail or reach out to the idiots for anything, you can email us at T-I-A-A-D media at gmail.com. Again, that is T-I-A-A-D media at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. Links can be found on Patreon, in our email signature, and on our SoundCloud page. We would also like to give a special thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon. If you want to hear your name included here, you can support us at the Honorary Idiot tier on Patreon. 